in these moments that we're calling discipleship moments this fall, where it's just a few minutes that we work into our time together to challenge us and to, to encourage us to think about what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? What does, it, what does it mean to be someone who follows Jesus and lives our lives in obedience to him? And today, we're, we're going to introduce this thing we're calling a, a Big Pocket Sunday. And for those of you who have been around, you may know already what that Big Pocket Sunday is. But it's really a chance for us to exercise the gift of being a disciple of Jesus by learning to live like Jesus. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 9, he says, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. These are sowing and reaping, our, our, our gardening terms, our harvesting terms, our farming terms. And, and he says, whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Whoever sows their seeds bountifully, lots and lots of seeds in, in the harvest, will reap a, a, a large bounty of a harvest. He says, each one, each of us, must give as we have decided in our hearts, not reluctantly or under compulsion or, or obligation, for God loves a cheerful giver. God cares about the condition of our heart in giving and serving and sacrificing for one another. A disciple is a giver, a servant, but one that does so with the condition of our heart that does so cheerfully to the Lord and compassionately to other people. And so God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Certainly it's our desire to serve and to love others, but it's God who enables that gift to accomplish what he wants it to accomplish. Church, this morning we are going to do this big pocket Sunday. We have a, a, a unique opportunity to give a one-time gift to a brother in Christ. Last week, we watched a, a, a video that was uh, made by a young woman named Sarai, who is a missionary from Colombia. She and her family were serving in a, a, a refugee camp in Greece, and they met this young man who was a translator. He was also a refugee from Afghanistan. He has escaped uh, a couple years before this most, uh, the most recent kind of downfall of Afghanistan to the Taliban. But in his time in the refugee camp, through these, this missionary family, he came to know the Lord and put his faith in Christ. He became a child of God because in that place of refuge, he found Jesus Christ through this missionary family. He went on to work with this missionary family to translate, to be a translator in the refugee camp. Eventually, he was able to find asylum in Switzerland, where he is now. But the thing about this is that he's separated from his family. See, his his, his wife and kids weren't able to make that journey with him. They're actually not necessarily in Afghanistan themselves, but they're in the Afghanistan-Pakistan border area. And, and, and what he wants to do is he wants to, he wants to bring them to him. Unfortunately, the circumstances now with the Taliban in control has made it extremely difficult. He'll have to pay smugglers to get his family from where they are to, to a refugee camp. And so he's working very hard to raise the money by, by finding jobs, whatever he can in, in, in where he is, to, to pay to bring his family to him. This is a very a dangerous situation because, you know, the, the physical lives of his loved ones are at risk. And so what we have is the opportunity to give a one-time gift to help 
pay to get his family from where they are to where he is. Church, this is what we call a big pocket Sunday. And there are ways that you can give to this, that we as the people of God can support a brother in Christ, can tangibly come alongside him and and love him cheerfully to see his family reunited. The way we can do this is either by putting our gift, there's, there's actually a really big pocket that we've got uh, tied onto the railing out there. You can put your gift in that pocket, whether it's cash or a check. If it's a check, we encourage you to write it out to Trinity Baptist Church because we will be giving uh, like a lump sum to the missionary organization who will, who will make sure the funds get to this young man and the appropriate people that need to move his family from where they are to where he is. So you can, you can write a check, make it out to Trinity Baptist Church. I would encourage you to write in the notes section, Big Pocket Sunday, so we know that it's designated for this. You can put that in the pocket there. You can, uh, you, you can if, you, if it's easier, you can put it in one of the generosity boxes at the back of the sanctuary or on the way out. Just make sure, again, you note the, the purpose of that gift. You can also go online, and we've created a button on our website and through the app for a Big Pocket Sunday giving. So that button will be open for the next week. So if you're not able to do it today, you have a few days to go online and do it there as well. But church, this opportunity is an opportunity for us to to tangibly show love to a brother in Christ who is in a place of of a deep soul-level hunger for help and, and, and being reunited with his family. And here's what we know. Because he now is a child of God, it's not just a matter of moving his family to him. The greatest need that he has is to lead his family to come and draw near to Christ and receive salvation through Jesus Christ alone. Our gift can help facilitate that. The more time he has to spend with them, the more he has to share his faith and how his life has been transformed by meeting Jesus. So, I want to pray for us as we, as we kind of wrap out this time, but kids, uh, adults, help, help me, no, not help me, let me help you understand that being a disciple of Jesus is taking tangible steps to live like Jesus, to taking risks and taking tangible, practical steps to love others and to help them love Jesus the way we've come to love him and know him. So let me pray for this young man and for, the, for God's will to be done in his life. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for the opportunity for us to respond in faith, to trust you, and to do so joyfully and cheerfully. Lord, we pray that you would raise up the needs of, of this young man, that he would not just be uh, trusting you to, to protect his family, but that he would see you work through your church to draw his family out of danger and, and to a place of finding refuge in this refugee camp. But, but ultimately, Lord, we pray that they would not find refuge in this refugee camp, but they would find refuge in you through this man's faith. Lord, we we know that you can do this, and so we trust you to accomplish what you can accomplish. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to be a part of this. Grow and expand our faith as we trust in you for this toward this end. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you, Trinity, for hearing me out. Kids, you are dismissed for Sunday school. Look at that. Go have some fun. Love seeing that excitement, girls. Go. Go, go, go. Right?
right, well, if you have your Bibles, pull them out. We're going to be in Luke 5 this morning. And uh, of course, we'll, we'll put the words up on the screen, but we'll be flipping around a little bit. So again, if you brought your Bibles, make sure you open them to Luke chapter 5, which is where we're going to start. And where we start this morning is where we're going to finish in our series uh, of messy neighboring. If you're like me, that as we've gone through this series, you've, you've realized you know, that this idea to love God and to love others is easier said than done, that it comes with a whole lot of challenges uh, and commitments, sacrifices, but I hope you've grown to believe that it comes with a whole amount of reward as well in seeing what God can do. Now, I will say this. I, I, I know I mentioned this before. It's a little bit cooler in here. Uh, we are, just so you know, we're going to be turning the heat on this week. The ops team have been on top of it, and so uh, we are fully aware of that. But again, if you need to stand up and wiggle or something like that, get the blood flowing, I am not offended. I'm not distracted. Uh, yeah, there you go, Tara. Thank you. Uh, you always want to be an object lesson. <laughs> uh, but we wel- I welcome that if it helps you stay warm. Uh, but, but hopefully God's word will be the, the warmth we need this morning. See, I hope that as we've gone through this series, you understand that, that loving our neighbor is, is more than a feeling, right? It, it's more than just having, uh, wanting what's good for them. It, it, it is a genuine desire from the very depth of our soul for God's best for other people, wanting that, desiring that. But then going beyond just this, this desire but that allows that desire to lead to actions, to, to lead to us living our lives out of the overflow of God's love in our own lives. I, I know sometimes it's easy in Christianity, not just in Christianity, the way our minds work, we, we kind of default to, uh, to thinking, all right, let me figure this out. Once I figure it out, I'll set it on autopilot and I'm good to go, right? If I know what actions I need to take, then I feel satisfied like that's enough. I'm good. I can, I can do that. I'm spinning that plate. Now I'm going to come over here and give, this, give attention to this area of my life. But the reality is that, that it's not just about doing loving actions. The role of a disciple of Jesus is to actually be transformed, to become someone different than when you started in your journey with Christ. And that includes loving your neighbor. It, it, it's not just about, uh, think about uh, doing something good. It's about being transformed so the very character of your person, uh, of who you are, is someone who loves others in word and in deed. And practically speaking, loving your neighbor is more than just knowing someone's name, knowing, uh, you know, what they do for a, a job. It's more than these brief conversations we may have that keep things on a surface level. It's actually getting into the place of their life where, where, you, where you, you're dealing with what's messy. You, you get to know them. You get to understand their past, their, 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 their present, the, the challenges they face. They, they trust you enough to, to sit with them in that place that's very uncomfortable, a place that they don't want other people to know about necessarily. I mean, how many of us enjoy telling other people the messy things of our lives? No hands. Okay, good. That's, that's what I expected. No hands. No one likes that, right? But this is where the mess comes in. You know, one of the more familiar passages on loving our neighbors, the story of the Good Samaritan. Do you think it was messy when, when uh, the, this... Uh, Samaritan first gazes upon this man who's been beaten and left to, to die on the side of the road? Do you think seeing this man's wounds, hearing him groan, 
just consider it thinking, oh man, this man might be dead. Do you think that was messy or shocking or, or frightening for this Samaritan as he walked along the way? Do you think it was messy as, as he bent down and dressed this man's wounds? Do you think it was, you know, did he think, oh, I, didn't, I don't have any gloves. I, I don't know if I should touch this man, you know? Do you think it was messy when he, he took some of his own uh, wine and, and poured it over the man's wounds? The idea is, by the way, that wine is actually helps to, specifically red wine, helps to disinfect a wound. So do you think it was messy for this man to, to take what red wine he had and, 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 and begin to pour it over this man's wounds? I don't think he intended, when, when he packed his bags that day and put some red wine in there, I don't think he thought, oh, if anyone gets injured, I can pour this wine on it. I think he had a different purpose for that red wine. Do you think it was messy when he had to sacrifice you know, his plans for the benefit of this man? Or, or what about when he took his own oil and, and, and poured it on the man's wounds? Again, oil was, was the sort of thing that would protect the wound so that it could heal. It, it kept the wound moist so the healing process could continue. Like, but again, oil, that's his own precious resources. Do you think it felt messy to him when he had to kind of give up what was his to care for this man who'd been beaten and left to die? If that's not enough, he, he, he dresses his wounds with cloth. He, he picks them up. He carries them to an inn. He not only uh, pays for him to have a room where he can rest and recuperate and heal, but before he leaves, he opens a tab for this man and says, hey, whatever this man needs, give it to him. When I return, I'll, I'll pay for it. Do you see the mess that's involved with being a good neighbor? It's not just about wishing your neighbors well. It's about sacrifice for the good of others, caring for them, being committed to their well-being, desiring God's very best. See, messy neighboring, it's not easy. But here's the thing, and here's the thing that might feel a little bit frightening for you this morning. Loving your neighbor isn't optional. Right? It's not something we could do as followers of Christ. Being a, a, a good neighbor, loving our neighbors, getting involved in messy neighboring is not optional. Hopefully we've gained a clear understanding of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus through this series. The truth is that you cannot be a disciple of Jesus without genuinely, or developing a genuine desire for God's very best in the lives of the neighbors in your life. Right? It's not setting up Fences, so it's us and them. You guys remember Tool Time, uh, the, um, the, the comedy, I think it was in the 80s, 90s, probably, 90s. And, and, and uh, Tim, was it? Home Improvement. Tool Time was the show that he had on Home Improvement. That's right, thank you. And, and he would always, like, he, he had this conversation with his neighbor, Wilson. But you could only ever see, like, the top of Wilson's face be, through the fence, right? I mean, the, the truth is, I mean, that, that happens, right? We have these, like, over-the-fence conversations. But that's not what it means to be a neighbor. You, you can't be a disciple of Jesus without developing this genuine love for and appreciation and care for your neighbor to genuinely desire what's, what's best for them, not, not just to make them happy, but to desire to see God work in their life. And you can't be a disciple of Jesus with, with, without working toward that end in their lives. Not just saying, man, I hope, I, hope this, I hope my neighbor finds Jesus. 
To be a disciple of Jesus is to bring Jesus into your neighbor's life. Being a disciple of Jesus, it's a commitment to a path of being changed into the character of Jesus by God's work in your life. But character is not something you just wake up with. It's not like the morning after I put my faith in Jesus, I all of a sudden woke up with the character of Christ formed in me. Character is something that's formed over time, patiently, through perseverance, plodding along, trusting in Jesus in the good times and in the bad, knowing that we may not be able to see it day to day, but God is forming his character in me. It's a commitment to that path. And it all begins when Jesus calls you to follow him. So let's turn in our Bibles. We're going to uh, read a passage in Luke chapter 5. And I'll read verses 27 to 32 for us. Luke records this. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi, who, by the way, is Matthew, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Heavenly Father, you have, you have sent your Son to call not the righteous, but the, the, the sinners to repentance. You have called to, to meet with the sick, to heal them, to bind up their wounds. And Lord, you have given us examples in the Bible of what it means to, to follow after you, to, to submit to a path where our character is transformed to be more like yours, where we too are called to seek and to save those who are lost by the power of your hand. So Lord, work in our hearts and minds this morning. May your word transform us. Your living and active word challenge us, encourage us, transform us from the inside out that we too might be a people who don't do loving things for our neighbors, but people who genuinely, by character, are lovers of our neighbors. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you know, as I, as I look around this room, I think there might be some people missing here this morning. And we're, we're a broken people. But you wouldn't necessarily know that by looking at us, right? I mean, looking around the room, we look, we look pretty good, right? We look like we've got things together. I mean, I do, anyway. I mean, <laughs> right? I think, I think we do. Like, I look out and I think, hey, we, we look like we've got things together. Back when I was little, I remember that going to church was always an interesting experience for me, right? I mean, we, we would get in the car. I don't, maybe, maybe this wasn't your ex- experience. Maybe it is. We would get in the car, and man, the, the arguing would commence. Like, you know, we're mad at this person because they're late to get in the car. Usually it was me that was late to get in the car, I confess. You know, we're mad at that person who, who ate the last piece of bacon before we left the table that morning. Someone pinched someone or did that to that person. My parents were not exempt from this. They, my parents, 
they're wonderful people, but they could argue, they could disagree with the best of them. But then something magical happened when we pulled into the parking lot of the church. Because as soon as that door to the car opened, it's like, bing, their, their smiles came on their face. Everything was good. There was nothing wrong. We, we, we walked into that church like everything was all together. There was nothing wrong. We became a different kind of people. We became the kind of people who, who got really good at hiding what we're ashamed of or, or keeping what, what was messy away from the eyes of the people around us. You know, I actually was reading a, a book this, well, I read a number of different books, but this one book I was reading this week, um, it spoke about that actually being a characteristic of the New England character, right? That, that we are a, a personal people. Like, historically speaking, this has been accounted for, that for those of us who grew up in New England, there is something about us that, that is uh, not... not um, it, it, it's, it's, it's shaped into us from a very young age that we keep what's private private and we live a, a different public life. And that's, that, was, that was actually a, a valued uh, perspective, right? It's, it's a little bit different today, but you can still see the impact of that over the generations where, where we grew up. We didn't talk about those things. The, the world didn't see... Like, we didn't walk into church when I was younger and talk about what mommy and daddy were saying to each other as, as we drove up to church. <laughs> oh, that would make for an interesting Sunday. So when did it become wrong to be a hot mess in church? Right? When did it become unacceptable for us to show up in church and not have all, everything all together? Because church, let me tell you, I, I, the way I experience it I think we put this expectation on ourselves that when we walk in the doors of this church, we have to have everything together. That we're, we're afraid of what other people will think of us if they see the mess that's going on in my life. If they think that my faith is struggling because I'm having a hard time. But here's the thing. This is the place we should be coming when we're a hot mess. We need a place to take refuge in the Lord, to be reminded of the promises of God, to, to find comfort in gathering with the people of God and realize we're not alone, but we've committed to this life of faith together. One of my favorite passages as a pastor to read is Luke 18. And, and, it's, and, and you can flip there, it's not going to be on the screen, but you can flip there, because in verses 10 to 14, Jesus tells this parable of these two men that are praying in the temple, a Pharisee and a tax collector. We'll get to this in a little bit, but the tax collector was kind of like this despicable person, right, in their culture in that, in that time. But the Pharisee was like the religious elite. He, he was what, if you wanted to be religious, you aspired to be like a Pharisee, Right? Uh, and in this parable that Jesus tells, these two men are praying, and he, he kind of characterizes the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee is saying, God, thank you so much for my life. Thank you that I'm better than this, these people, especially like that tax collector who's over there in the corner. Man, look at his life. He is a mess, right? So we've got the Pharisee who's praying like that. Then we have this tax collector who doesn't care about anyone else in the room but he's crying out to God, God, have mercy on me. I am a sinner. I need your grace. I need your provision. I need your care in my life. So I, I want you to understand something. When I come across 
someone like a tax collector in this world, man, it's like a breath of fresh air for me. Because I, I know that they've, they're at a point of, of surrender. They're no longer trying to keep this facade of, of look how we've got my, I've got my life together. See, the tax collector's not living a lie. He may be a sinner, but he, he's a truthful sinner. Whereas the, the Pharisee, by the way, who's equally a mess, just unwilling to accept it and believe it and live according to that truth. He's going around saying, hey guys, listen, we can't all be as good as me, but, but you know what? Follow, you know, like, look, at, look at my life. Try to do like I do, right? See, the truth be told, they're both sinners. But only the tax collector has the humility, the humility to recognize his need for God and to seek God in turning his life around. See, we, we, we should be a place where tax collectors and sinners feel safe to walk in these doors, where, where we can be a people that make it safe for them to be here and to not feel critiqued and judged or, or kind of like, ooh, that's gross, you know? Like, we, we need to be a place where people can come and see the people of God being the gracious people of God. The, see the people of God being humble and truthful about who we are. That we too, like the tax collector, can cry out to God, God, have mercy on me. I am a sinner. I need your hand of provision. I need your care in my life. See, I think, I think there are some people who are missing this morning. Acknowledging that your life is a mess and that you need God is not a bad thing. That, that should be like the posture of why we're, we're coming here. Because it's really only Jesus who can pour his mercy and acceptance upon our wounds. It's, it's only Jesus who can pour out his grace and forgiveness to, to, to cleanse the, the wounds in our soul, to, to heal us with his forgiveness. It's only the Holy Spirit who can dress your wounds and, and regenerate you to life. Simply put, it, 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 it's, it's God who meets us in the mess of our lives. That's why we come here on Sunday mornings, to, to gather together around that truth and that reality around Jesus Christ himself. See, in, in Levi's story, we read of a messy man met by a courageous Savior who graciously gives him a new calling. Now, I want, us to, I want to point out two callings that, that Matthew Levi receives in our passage this morning. The two callings of every Christian, of, of every person who comes to put their faith in Christ, whoever trusts in him. And then I, I, after that, I, I want to talk about why we have to be filled with courage and not fear to faithfully follow him. The first calling we receive is to actually follow Jesus. When, when Jesus first meets Levi, he's sitting at his tax collector's booth, gathering up the tolls of the people. Levi, the first step is not Levi to approach Jesus, but Jesus approaching Levi. Right? We need to understand that. That, that Jesus is trying to reach your neighbors. Jesus is trying to approach the broken and the needing, those who are in need in this world. 
Jesus draws near to the mess. For Levi, he's sitting at, at, at his tax collector's booth, and, and at first glance, like you may not think anything different of it. It just seems like that's another job in their culture, and their tradition. But the tax collectors were this despised group of people. They, they were not the people, like they were, they were not liked. They, they, were, they were people who were gathering up the, the taxes and the tolls that the Roman government had placed upon the Jewish people and the people of the land. So not only were there uh, being tolls that were collected from them to a, a foreign government that was oppressing them, but now you have Jewish people helping the foreign oppressors to, to, to take money from their own people. Levi was a, a, a member of the nation of Israel. So it's not just a foreign government oppressing his people. It's the people of Israel oppressing Israel. Again, they're going, who are you? Whose side are you on? What are you doing? And to make matters worse, it was a known reality that tax collectors took what was contracted with the Roman government saying, you know, you owe 7% tax, but then they would add 3% more on to line their own pockets. So here's Levi getting rich off of the oppression of his own people. Tax collectors, people didn't like them. They were, ex- they were actually seen as being excluded from the people of God. They were seen as being unclean, unholy. They, it was very clear to them that, that the people of God did not love them, like them, or accept them. And in the same way that Jesus drew near to Levi and called on him to follow him, so Jesus draws near to us in our mess and calls us to follow him. You know, I think it's important, if not for ourselves, but for the neighbors that we go and spend time with, is that Jesus doesn't call them to follow him once they get their lives in order. Jesus actually goes to meet them in the mess of their lives. Jesus goes to meet them in the midst of their, their, their depression and their anguish, their loneliness, in, in the, 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 the kind of the intermingling of sin in their lives. You know, someone who's lived a lie for so long eventually believes it's true, and it's so hard to, 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 uh, to separate truth from lies in their life. But the thing is, it's, God's not saying, hey, once you figure out what's true and what's not true in your life, then I'll come and call you to follow me. He says, no, I'm going to meet them in the midst of that where they can't find their own way out of it, and I'm going to call them out of that mess. I'm going to call them to follow me. In the same way that Jesus drew near to Levi in the midst of his mess, he draws near to us. Jesus isn't grossed out by our grotesqueness. He's not embarrassed by what we're ashamed of. He's like that good Samaritan who, who saw the man who'd been beaten and left to die by the side of the road, and he had compassion for him. And he entered into the beaten man's mess. Church, Jesus isn't repulsed or repelled by your mess. And, and, and he's not repulsed or repelled by the mess of other people that come into our world or that we go out and see in our world. You know, this is, this is not one of those places, like the Pharisee in that Luke 18 passage, he was better than the tax collector in his own mind. But <laughs> Jesus tells that parable, and he uses the tax collector as the hero. 
It's not the Pharisee. We're not called to be like the Pharisee. We're actually called to be like the tax collector. We're not called to think better of ourselves than, than the person whose life is a mess. We're called to say, man, that, that's me. I'm, I'm like that tax collector. My life is a hot mess too. Let me come alongside them and encourage them and tell them there's hope in the midst of the mess. See, Jesus isn't repelled by the mess. He, he draws near and, and instead he says, Listen, you've, you've tried life your way. Now trust me. Follow me. Let me, let me show you the way. Right? So what, is, what does Levi do when, when he's faced with this invitation? Look again at verse 28 with me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Now, I think when we read this, we think, okay, you know, this is like that, that rich young ruler that we learned about last week or a couple weeks ago where, ah, man, Jesus is going to tell me to sell everything, to give away everything, to be left with nothing and follow him. No, I don't think that that's what, what Jesus is saying here. I, I don't think that's what Levi did. Here's why. Because later on, it's, sorry, let me back up. Simon and James and John, earlier in the, uh, Luke 5, they too are, receive a calling from Jesus to follow him. They too leave everything and, and follow him, right? And, and, and here's the thing. Later on in the life of Jesus and, and his ministry, they're going around in, Peter's, or in Simon's boat. They spend time in, in, in Simon's house. Simon never really did give away everything of his earthly possessions. But what he does do is he abandons his hope in all the things that he had built his life around and trusts in Jesus for everything. Jesus is his all. At the center of his life, the core of his being, the, the, the depth of his soul, it's Jesus who is his hope. It's Jesus who is his everything. It's Jesus who shepherds him forward, who leads him in the decisions of life and what he does. And so Levi abandons his hope in all the things that he's built his life around. This, this generous income he'd been receiving from the Romans and from, by stealing from his, his fellow Israelites, he abandons it. He, he gives up his job with, no, you know, with, with the risk being he's not going to get his job back if he finds out week, two weeks down the road it's not working out so good following Jesus. He abandons his hope in those things and trusts Jesus that Jesus will lead him where he needs to go and be. Now, he doesn't, he doesn't leave there and all of a sudden have everything he needs. That leaving everything is, an ex, is, a, is a, a genuine expression of trust and faith. But, but don't miss this, because Jesus' invitation to follow him was a huge honor. The scriptures oftentimes talk about Jesus as a teacher, a rabbi. And in those days, students sought a rabbi out. But Jesus flips that on its head and says, hey, I'm going to seek out my disciples. I'm going to call on them. I'm going to bless them with the honor of me calling upon their lives. And for Levi, this man who was unholy, who was excluded from the community of faith, who felt rejected by the people, was now being embraced by Jesus. If you look back a few verses at the beginning of chapter 5, you'll notice that 
Levi's story is one story in a string of stories of situations in Jesus' life about people that he draws near to and blesses them with honor and calling them to follow him. People who had been rejected by the Pharisees, by the religious elite, by, by the community of faith because they were unclean. They were blemished. They, their lives were a mess, right? And in addition to Levi's story being called to follow Jesus, we're told of, a, story, of a, a time when Jesus calls upon a group of these uneducated fishermen to follow him. Early in the chapter, when Jesus calls Simon, James, and John, they'd been out fishing. And just like Levi, the Bible tells us that, that they also leave everything and follow him. The language of chapter 5 of Luke tells us that there's a model going on here of what it means to be a disciple. Being a disciple of Jesus is not praying a prayer of confession that I'm a sinner, help me. It's, it's also about making the decision to follow after Jesus, to, to go in the direction that Jesus is going and to trust him even when we don't have what we want in, in our hands in that immediate moment. Early on in, in Simon's story, he, he declares, you know, go away from me for I am unclean. There's a repentance that happens there. There's a confession that I'm a sinner. But in that same place, Jesus says, follow me. And what's the response of a disciple? It's to leave everything and to follow him. It's to abandon our hope in the things of this world. Success, riches, following, people, friends, you know, all of that may feel good, but it's meaningless apart from the hope of Jesus taking hold of our lives, transforming us from the inside out, shaping our characters. So that first calling we receive is a call to follow. It's like when David writes in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. The shepherd has called his sheep to follow him. And so we're going to listen for his voice. We're going to get to know his voice, and we're going to follow him. That's that first calling on every Christian's life. Follow me. That's an invitation. God doesn't obligate us to follow him. He invites us to follow him. He calls us out of the mess, says, follow me. And the second calling upon the life of every Christian, then, is the call to serve. Now, in our passage, Levi immediately takes the gift of a relationship with Jesus and starts sharing it with others. He throws a banquet. He invites all of his tax collector friends. Say, hey, come and, and have this feast. Celebrate with me. I found something really cool. Let me, let me introduce you to Jesus, right? Earlier in the passage when Jesus calls Simon and James and John, he, he's calling uh, these uh, fishermen to no longer be fishers of fish, but to be fishers of men. It's more direct, more clear that this second calling is to be a fisher of men. I mean, how many of us in the Christian life, especially in the day and age, we, day and age that we live in, see the church as being a place of refuge for us to step out of the world and, and kind of be together with people of like mind? But that's not what we're called to be as disciples, yeah, it's a place of encouragement, of worshiping God, of being equipped and strengthened and encouraged. But our calling is not to gather together on Sunday morning and that's where it stays. Our calling on each and every one of us, not just the pastor or one of the ministry leaders, our calling, each and every one of us, is to be 
fishers of men, to be servants of God's kingdom. As a disciple of Jesus, we do this. We, we, we're called to follow Jesus and then, and, and then not, just leave, not just have that relationship between Jesus and us, Jesus and me. It's a relationship where we, we, we're called to share that relationship. We're called to share the love of Jesus. We're, we're called to, to, to allow the overflow of God's love in our lives to flow into the lives of the people around us. And, th- and this, this is where it starts to get messy, and this is where our fear bubbles up, I think, right? We, we wonder if our neighbors will think we're strange, right? We fear not knowing what to say when they ask us questions, right? I mean, who's been there? Like, you think, I, I don't know, I'm not, I'm not smart enough to, to, to have that debate with them or to figure it out, right? And so that fear keeps you from, from engaging the conversation. We, we fear being rejected or cast aside, right? We, we fear being kind of put in a box and said, you know, I don't know, like, you, you're just one of those, <clears throat> excuse me, religious religious wackos, right? But if we listen to that fear, if we let our lives be led by that fear, we're never going to truly love our neighbors, right? It's not about just maintaining you know, the status quo with our neighbors, making sure that you know, we mow our lawn so they don't, they're not grossed out by our lawn and, and, and every now and then we say hi to them. That's, that's not the goal. That's not truly loving your neighbor. Loving your neighbor is not just keeping the peace with your neighbor. It's crossing the fence into their yard, getting to know them and, and spending time with them. But to do that, you have to overcome some fear. See, in our, our passage, Levi throws a party for Jesus and his tax collector buddies. And in, in doing so, he draws some, some unwanted attention to the Pharisees. Look at verse 30 with me. We read, The Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Yeah, I, almost, I, I can almost picture them kind of standing in the corner whining like, like, like whining little babies, like, oh, what are you doing eating with tax collectors and, and sinners? But here are the religious elite, just grumbling, just, just grumbling to each other, like, oh, my goodness, look what he's doing. Look, does he not realize how messy they are? See, not really. Like, like in, the, um, in the Gospels, when, when Mary comes and is weeping and washing his feet, they said, do you realize what you're letting happen to you right now? Do you, do you realize what, who you're letting touch your feet? She's dirty. She's unclean. What are you doing, right? It's this messed up way of thinking, which we all say, yeah, those Pharisees are so messed up. But pause for a second. Is it possible that that's us? Is it possible that when we see someone walk in who seems to be a mess, we're like, ooh, I'm going to go sit over here, right? Is it possible when someone is in such a place of deep anguish and you know that they need someone to come alongside them and love them and care for them, you're kind of like, yeah, okay, I'll pray for you. See you later. Is it possible, this really, here's what it is. Is it possible that this is an invitation for you to check your heart, to check your own uh, kind of view of this person, your perspective on this person's life. When, when it seems like they've got, that their life is a mess, are, are you like that Pharisee that says, 
why are you eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? Like, that's not, like, the church shouldn't be spending time with people like that. We, we shouldn't be spending time with people whose lives are a mess and, and, and they don't know what to do with it. See, the Pharisees, they're, they're the most self-righteous and selfish people in the New Testament. They're not the people that we should be aiming to be like. They, they would never allow themselves to be unclean by associating themselves with tax collectors and, and sinners. But, but notice something. Are the Pharisees all up in arms about the sin of the tax collectors? Are they, are they all up in arms because the, the tax collectors are in a, uh, in a place where they deeply need to be repentant and in need of God's forgiveness? Or are they up in arms because Jesus is sharing a meal with the tax collectors? Is there grumbling about the tax collectors? Or is it a judgment against Jesus because he has drawn near to the mess? He's drawn near to those who are lost and sick and in need of healing and acceptance and forgiveness. They're upset with Jesus. Church, do we get upset with one another because we see someone spending time with someone? Like because we see someone going out for dinner with someone or at a bar or, 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 or spending time in a place that we think, oh, that's not a good place to be. Or, or the, you know, why, why, are you, why, are you, why do you have a poker night with friends from, from town? Like that's, not, that's not good. That's not holy. Like there's, there's, this, there's this sense that, that our anger is not at the sin, but a judgment against the people who would willingly draw near to someone in need, someone whose life is, is in need of help. And so if you take a look at Jesus' response, this is where we see the difference and the distance between Jesus' perspective and the perspective of the Pharisees. See, Jesus tells these selfish and self-righteous Pharisees, I didn't come to hang out with people who are well. People who are well don't need a doctor. Who needs a doctor? Those who are sick, those who are wounded, those who are hurt. I came to spend time with those people. I'm, I, I'm a doctor of, of souls. I came to seek and to save those who need healing. I came, I came to disinfect their wounds by pouring wine on them. I, I, I came to pour oil on the wounds of their souls to help them heal. I came to wrap their, their, their wounds with my life and, and, to, and to find the, the regeneration, the healing of these wounds so that they may have life. Listen to me for a moment. When we do this, when we walk in this way, you will attract unwanted attention from others. You will attract unwanted attention from others, maybe within, within inside the church, but definitely outside the church when you generously, genuinely, and selflessly love your neighbors. There are going to be moments where you need to forego pointing out the sin in someone else's life. And you need to be present with them. You need to get to know them. You need to start to prayerfully seek, Lord, show me where's the root of this person's sin that I might compassionately care for them. That I might meet them in that place of woundedness and, and pour your grace upon it. That I might wrap that wound in the life of Jesus. There are going to be moments when you do that that other Christians might say, what are you doing? What are you affirming in that person's life? You're going to risk entering a world where, where your beliefs are unwelcome. 
You're going to risk stepping outside the nice, neat confines of, of this space where, where you're surrounded by people who are like-minded. You're going to sit at the table with people who scoff at the idea of believing in God. You're, you're going to stand around a grill in the afternoon talking about life with people who share a different sexual ethic than you do. And that's exactly where you need to be. That's exactly where you need to be. You and I need to risk stepping outside of our comfort zones. You know, it's who we are as disciples. We're not just called to follow Jesus. We're called to follow him and become fishers of men. And to be fishers of men, we need to get on the boat, get out into the water, and start casting our lines. Or throwing our nets, actually. That's probably a better biblical image for us. Simon, James, John, they all received their calling to follow Jesus. And, and, and then they received their calling to become fishers of men. See, our purpose and our identity as followers of Jesus is to become like Jesus. To become wholly transformed. And we fight against that. We, we, every day we resist, not, maybe not us, but the sin within us resists being transformed to become more like Jesus. Rather than take the risk of spending a few more minutes with our neighbor, getting to know them and listen attentively to them and their, their world and their life, we're, we're thinking about what's the next thing I need to get to. We're, you know, I, I'd rather not listen to what's going on here. I'd rather move on, right? But our, our, our identity is wrapped up in being transformed to become like Jesus, who was, not, who was a fisher of men, who gave his life to seek and to save those who were lost. And that's exactly what Jesus came for. He didn't come to spend time with us. He, he came to call us, to equip us, but then to send us out so that those who are sick might come to know him, might experience the healing that that man who had been beaten and left to die experienced because the good Samaritan sacrificially, generously, genuinely went out of his way to love this man that he didn't even know. Church, I hope we realize that the story of the Bible is story after story of the God of the Bible drawing near to people with messy lives, calling them out of that mess, giving them a new purpose and a new identity. Ruth, from the Old Testament, she was, she was a widow and a foreigner, and yet she's the great-grandmother of David. Do we realize that, that, that God would take a foreigner and through her lineage bring the promised king, King David, to establish the, the kingdom of Israel, and then through David's lineage, send his only son, Jesus, the Savior that they've been waiting for all along. That Ruth's lineage, this foreign woman, God has grafted her into the family of God, given her a purpose. Rahab was a prostitute. She was a, a, a foreigner to the nation of Israel, and yet God grafted her into the people of God. She, too, was an ancestor of David. She, too, by extension, was an ancestor of Jesus. Do you think about that? Jesus has a prostitute in his family history. Like we would think, oh, that, no way, never. Jesus is too holy. That could never be. God works through the mess of not just our present but our past. He redeems the things of our past, working through the present for his glory, if we will hear his calling to follow him, and then to be obedient to that calling of being fishers of men. Moses was a murderer, 
Yet God used him to lead his people out of slavery. David, too, he was an adulterer and a murderer. And yet, it's through his lineage that Jesus is born. In the New Testament, Mary Magdalene, right? She was someone who had been demon-possessed. Some people think she, too, was a prostitute. We're not, that's not biblically clear. But we do know that Jesus healed her of being possessed by demons. And yet, she's the first one that Jesus revealed himself to after he rose to life. Do we, what an honor that is for all of history. This woman who, who, who other people shied, uh, stayed away from and, and, and kind of kept at arm's length as being unclean, unac- unacceptable. Jesus heals her and gives her the honor of being the first person to see him alive and resurrected from the grave. I mean, Luke 5, you see him heal a crippled man, a, a, a leper, These are the people that God is sending us to. These are the people that we're called to love, not just in having these desires for, but in genuine, authentic, living our lives, loving other people. Now, I I think there are plenty of conversations we have about the gospel here in the body of Christ, but I don't think that's what we're really ultimately called to do. God, God wants to hear stories of gospel conversations that are happening with people outside the family of God. He wants to hear about the conversations we're having with our neighbors about where we turn for hope in the midst of grieving. He wants to hear about conversations we're having about about truth, eternal truth, with with people at work, where, where we turn to for hope when things are not going well. God wants to hear stories of gospel conversations every day. And get it, I, and listen, I, I get it. I know that's scary. Again, we could all probably come up with a long list of reasons that keep us from having these, these, these conversations. Fear of rejection, fear of not knowing what to say, fear of appearing foolish, fear, fear of seeming like a bigot or not tolerant. But here's the thing. Here's what we cling to. God's perfect love casts out fear. What John meant when he said those words is that when we accept God's love in our life, there's no longer any need to fear. You don't have to fear for your reputation. You don't have to fear for what other people think about you. Because what they think of you ultimately doesn't satisfy the need that's deep within your soul. God has fully accepted you. His love pours out and showers you in his grace. It, it's all you need So when God's love is flowing in and through your life, you don't have to fear for your welfare because God is big enough, he's wise enough, and he's powerful enough to care for all of your needs. That's what that means when you say, when when John writes, God's perfect love casts out all fear. It's all we need. So how do we combat that fear? How do we we live in that place of solely uh, needing God's perfect love and nothing else? How do we let God's love cast that fear out of our lives? I think disciples combat fear each and every day by going to that never-ending well of God's love and drawing our life from that. Every day we're picking up our Bibles, not reading the Bible because we're supposed to, but because it's the source of truth and life and love. It's the way God supernaturally fills us with his purpose and his presence and his love. 
In Psalm 46, David writes, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. Do we understand? This is, this is the word of God. Picking it up. Letting the river of God's life and love flow into our hearts and minds to shape our perspective as we go into the day. To, to heal our hearts and minds as we go to bed at night. To think on the word of God. To reflect on the promises of God throughout our day. To strengthen us and to, to keep us faithful in the path that he's led us to. When Jesus spoke with the Samaritan woman at the well, who, by the way, again, was, was shocking because Jesus isn't supposed to be speaking to a, a woman, let alone a Samaritan woman, and yet Jesus does. And he, he doesn't just speak to her. He, he, he dives into the mess of her life, right? Anyway, when he's speaking to her, he, he tells her this. He says, everyone who drinks of this water, drinks of the, the, the well that they're standing next to talking beside, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. How do we combat fear? We go back to the well of living water that God has given us and planted in our hearts and minds. That, that, that we draw life from this. Strength from his word. And we go there day after day, moment after moment. That's how we combat fear. That's where we turn to for strength when we're faced with loving our neighbors, but, but we're feeding ourselves all these reasons why we shouldn't go. We have a well to draw life from and confidence and strength from. And when we're daily reminded of, of these promises of God, the, the words of Jesus in the scriptures, when we're daily filled with God's love, it crowds out the space in our lives for fear. Church, don't be ruled by fear. Run to your neighbors. Share a meal with them. Get to know them. Love them genuinely, not in feelings, but in actions. Paul tells us in Romans 10, he says, for everyone who calls, in verse 13, he says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Listen, preaching is not something that happens here on Sunday morning when I stand behind the pulpit. Preaching the gospel is something you, that happens when you live your life with your neighbors, when you, when you spend time with them, when you get to know them more intimately, when you listen for what's going on in their world, and you prayerfully ask God, how can I, how can I speak your gospel into their situation? That's how you preach the, the good news of Jesus. You have been sent. We have been sent. We have been called to be fishers of men. In a moment, the worship team's going to come up, back up and, and lead us in a song, Whom Shall I Fear? Now, I hope that this song is a, is a prayer and a reminder that we are being sent out. 
And, and, and as we do, we don't have to be afraid because God goes before us into those situations. God is gone ahead of us into every one of these conversations that we're going to come across. God is with us in every interaction. All that he asks is that we go with his good news, the good news of God's grace and love found in Jesus. So church, Who's the neighbor you need to get to know? I'm not, I'm not, that's not a rhetorical question. Actually, it's a rhetorical in the sense you don't need to tell me right now, but it's, it's not rhetorical in your life. There's a name. There's a face. There's a person in your life. I'm not, I'm not talking about, like, you know, picture your entire neighborhood or, or, or think of all the coworkers you, you work with or think of all the families that your kids go to school with. I'm saying there's a specific name, a face of someone that God has called you to be a fisher of, to go and love. Who is that neighbor? Who's the person you want to grow closer with? Who's, whose mess will you not be afraid of? Don't be afraid. You've been called to follow Jesus. You've also been called to become fishers of men. So what do we do, church? Let's go love our neighbors. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we, again, I realize how simple it is for me to stand up here and say these things and how much harder it is to go out and to live these truths out. To not be overwhelmed with fear, but to, be, to, to, to embrace that perfect love of God which casts out fear. To, to, to daily draw from the well of life that we have in Jesus Christ. To, to, to allow the Holy Spirit to quicken our hearts and minds as we read the scriptures and as we rely upon the promises of God. Lord, empower us to have courage and wisdom and strength to go out and to love our neighbors, not by making them like us with good feelings, but to love them with the gospel of Jesus Christ, that they might know that there is a solution to their mess, that there is, that, that, that there is a God who wants to pour the wine upon our wounds, to, to disinfect what is infected with sin, that there is a God who wants to pour oil over our wounds, that, that over time we might heal, be restored, and not have those scars that, that, that can come from a, a, a poor process of healing. Lord, send us out with the gospel of Jesus Christ that, that promises to wrap those people who are caught in mess, to wrap them with life in Jesus by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, we stand before you with open hands asking you to do this work in our lives for your glory and for your kingdom. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.